Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm Lane Nordland, and the 2020 election is wrapped up. A week ago today, when we're recording this podcast, the 2020 election was held. A lot of votes still being counted, but uh, the major news networks and experts are calling that Joe Biden is president-elect and will become president in 2021. So what does this mean for the cattle industry here in the United States? That's going to be the topic of our podcast here today. Joining us from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., in the NCBA D.C. headquarters is Vice President of Government Affairs, Ethan Lane. Uh, Ethan, uh, how, how are things? out in Washington, D.C. with uh, the the true election day uh, a week behind us. Uh, uh, what's the climate like out in the Beltway here today? Well, you know, there is always uh, uh, sort of a, a predictable flow to to the several weeks after uh, a, a federal election and, and in particular after a presidential election here in Washington. There are some things that you can kind of count on regardless of how uh, those elections shake out. So, you know, those of us that have been through several cycles back here in Washington um, are kind of doing what we always do in the week after the election. You start reaching out to some of those newly elected members of Congress. Uh, you start uh, talking about what committee chairmanships are going to look like. And over the next couple of days, we will see those newly elected members uh, get on airplanes and make their first trips back to Washington to start laying the groundwork uh, to take office. And, and, you know, despite the fact that obviously for the presidential election, there is still uh, quite a bit going on, uh, whether it be with some of those legal challenges or just the overall transition process, that takes a little bit longer to get going. So our, our first order of business back here is that more immediate congressional transition that starts to happen really a couple days after the election. Well, it was pretty clear that uh, rural America voted for uh, President Trump when you look at the states that he won. Um, and uh, really, they, a lot of folks across rural America will say that he was a champion for them and a voice and listen to their concerns. Now, of course, uh, as you mentioned, there is uh, legal challenges uh, to the election results. Um, what, what is this looking like? I mean, I, I guess we can look back to the 2000 election when uh, Al Gore didn't concede till uh, the, the beginning of December. What, what does a legal challenge look like? I, I think that's what everyone's asking. What, what is going to come of this process? Uh, how many lawyers have involved? Can you maybe paint a picture about what the situation is at hand as, as we look at the Electoral College and votes that uh, President Trump claims are, uh, aren't uh, qualified to be counted? Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's really the big question, right? I mean, we're, we're tracking these legal challenges, and uh, there are more of them by the day as they identify these different states that, that could be impactful uh, to their vote total. But you know, while there are some similarities to 2000, there are some differences as well. You know, in that in that race in 2000, uh, those of us that are old enough to remember it, um, you know, we were down to a couple hundred votes, and it was a uh, it was a very micro scale recount with with really macro scale implications, right, coming out of the state of Florida. You know, this this cycle is different than that. Uh, we are talking about tens of thousands of votes by our last count. Uh, the president probably needs to flip about 80,000 votes uh, in a couple key states, Pennsylvania being chief among them, um, to, to shift uh, the, the election call that we saw over the weekend. 
um, you know, that, that's going to mean looking for several different avenues to challenge those results. Obviously, we did see some things in this election cycle that we haven't seen before. Uh, the, the massive uh, uh, mail-in voting that we saw because of COVID-19 in states across the country, that enormously elevated voter turnout um, where we saw the most votes ever cast for a uh, you know, perceived winner of a presidential election, as well as the most votes I believe ever cast for a sitting president um, in an election. So we had a, a huge uptick in votes. Um, but the manner in which those votes were sent in, um, not to mention the fact that, you know, we're still waiting in some states um, for those uh, ballots that were postmarked the day of election to even arrive. You know, there are some counts in congressional races in places like New York that have kind of flatlined at 65 to 72 percent of the vote counted while they wait on some of those ballots. In some states, they're saying, gosh, we don't know if anybody has sent them in, but we sent them out. So we want to make sure that Anything that's late arriving, you know, really comes in before we count it. I mean, there are some things here that, that we just haven't encountered at this kind of scale before, and that is going to take some time to work its way through the system, as are uh, those legal challenges that the Trump campaign is mounting uh, across the country. But I, I think it's important to keep in mind, and this is why you're seeing a lot of, of Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, institutions and groups sort of uh, move past this, um, you know, we saw Farm Bureau uh, congratulate President-elect Biden. We saw the U.S. Chamber do the same thing. We've seen quite a few other groups uh, engage in that. And the reason for that is they're looking at those numbers, Lane, and, and, and the, 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 the hill is just so much bigger to climb uh, that, that I think a lot of folks doing the math are just feeling like even if they have some success in some, some specific court challenges, they need to have success in a, a multitude of, of court challenges all at the same time to actually flip this result. And that uh, increasingly looks like a very big hill to climb uh, for the president and his team. So I, I think that's why you're seeing the, the reaction that I think is disappointing to a lot of producers in the country, to a lot of Trump supporters in the country, because you're right. I mean, I, rural America turned out in force. And, and quite frankly, and, you know, I've been saying this for a year, and, and, and so have basically every other, uh, uh, you know, uh, poll watcher in the country. I mean, the polling leading up to this election was as wrong as it was in 2016. Uh, the president's support was there just like it was in 2016, despite, uh, you know, despite the, the, the media and, and, and the polling community insisting that it wasn't. The blue wave that we were expecting and we were told to expect didn't occur. Um, what we saw instead was kind of a blue wave and a red wave meeting each other um, and reconfirming, I think, some of the same battlegrounds and battle lines that we knew were there all along. Um, this country is is pretty pretty starkly divided at about 50 50, um, and we're seeing those results election cycle after election cycle. I think the the important thing to remember about that is, you know, while um, we 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 didn't fare as well in some of those states on the Republican side as we as as maybe was expected, boy, on the congressional side and the Senate side, uh, there were a lot of pickups. There there was some real ground uh, made up by uh, Republicans in some of these races around the country, and in particular in some of these ag districts, um, that, 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 that's really good news for cattle producers. I mean, it's, as, a, as a, you know, looking at this election uh, holistically across all the, the different races, um, you know, it, it, there's a lot of good news to look at in this, in this race, um, you know, and, and, and we, we, we're going to need to deal with uh, some of those things as well, and, and some of these new members that are coming to town, and a rebalance of power uh, on Capitol Hill. So, there's, there's a lot more to this race other than just the presidential, but we're probably sometime before that's going to be completely put to bed as well. 
Well, the Senate, of course, uh, that race really watched closely across the nation. Uh, and, uh, of course, even even Montana was one of the, the top-watched uh, uh, Senate seats. Uh, in, incumbent Senator Steve Daines versus uh, Montana Governor Steve Bullock on the Democratic ticket. Uh, Daines and, and Bullock, uh, according to the polls, were neck and neck up until Election Day. And then when the votes came in, Danes beat Bullock by 10%. So, again, the, the, these polls yeah. and these publications for two election cycles now in a row really aren't, aren't that uh, great of an information resource when it comes to, to folks that are actually voting. But as we talk about the Senate, we still have a runoff going on in Georgia for the two Senate seats that are currently held by Republicans. Um what are we expecting to see in this race? Obviously, Georgia um, right now is still uh, in the Biden camp in terms of votes. Not all of those votes have been counted as of this uh, podcast recording. Um, are we going to see the turnout, though, like we saw in the initial presidential race for this runoff race uh, for uh, the two Senate uh, seats in the state of Georgia? Well, that's the real question. And kind of going back to what you said a minute ago about the polling, the other part of this story is the, the money that has been spent in this cycle. If you look at, uh, I believe it's, it's uh, Senator McConnell's race in, in Kentucky, the Tom Tillis race in North Carolina, and Lindsey Graham's race in South Carolina, uh, the Democratic Party and, and some of those uh, independent expenditure groups, those super PAC groups, uh, supporting Democratic candidates spent something like $300 million just on those three races and lost all three of them. Um, and, and we saw that story play out everywhere in the country. Uh, you know, Steve Daines' race is a great example of that. Wherever we look in the country, we see a, a pretty substantial uh, uh, delta in the spending on the, on the D side versus the R side, and, and some pretty decent results for Republicans despite that spending. I think what we're going to see in Georgia is kind of that on steroids. You know, we've now got a, a massive effort on both uh, on behalf of both parties to try to re-energize their voters for one more trip to the polls uh, for these two special elections. And, and, you know, we're hearing estimates that there could be as much as a billion dollars spent on that effort on both sides of the aisle. That's a big number. Um, and, and I don't know if we'll get there, but we are going to see a tremendous amount of resources spent. The poor people in Georgia are just going to be inundated uh, with, with advertising. They're not going to be able to uh, buy a cup of coffee or, or pick their head up from their phone without getting slammed with a campaign ad in the next few weeks. But, you know, what we know about those kinds of special elections and, and, and uh, trips to the ballot box that do not take place in a normal time frame like voters are used to is that they do tend to skew to the establishment. They do tend to skew uh, to those, uh, those bedrock voters, typically Republican voters, uh, that vote always, every time. Um, and, and so, you know, when you look at the fact that Georgia has not elected a Democrat to the Senate in something like 30 years, um, there are some things that are, that are going to trend in the favor of those Republicans that are running to hold on to those two seats, uh, Kelly Loeffler um, and, uh, and David Perdue. Um, but, you know, you do have this massive overspend by the Democrats. You have, um, you have uh, a lot of sort of marquee names that are going to come down there and try to re-energize uh, that urban Atlanta vote that, that was so impactful for, uh, for Vice President Biden and his campaign during the presidential. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just not as clean cut, although 
some of those tools are going to be taken out of the toolbox for Democrats in this runoff, uh, just because you're not going to have the presidential to lean on. You're not going to have Trump to be on the ballot as a boogeyman uh, for, for some of those voters in Atlanta. It's just a different playing field. Um, but it, it does have huge implications for the U.S. Senate. If the Democrats were able to turn both of those seats, obviously we would be left with a 50-50 split in the U.S. Senate, which would allow the vice president to cast that tie-breaking vote. Um, you know, anything other than that uh, is going to result in Republicans maintaining control of the U.S. Senate for another term. So uh, the implications for this are enormous, uh, not the least of which uh, just when we start talking about confirming new cabinet appointments for a president-elect Biden heading into the spring. And again, that election runoff date is January 5th. So we have several more weeks to go uh, until that uh, uh, Georgia Senate runoff actually occurs. And, you know, Ethan, as I sit here and, and you look at like the, the counting that is just so slow in, in Nevada, for example, and, and Alaska and all these other states, it just it, it just makes me feel like when you're counting cows or, or calves and uh, you look at your dad or your father-in-law and you're like, well, well, how many did you count? Well, how many did you count and then uh you have a difference of three or four so you gotta count them again that's <laughs> i think we've all been in that situation so maybe we can relate to all this chaos in a, a different format of of how to count but uh definitely very frustrating right. i know for folks not not being able to see the results in a traditional manner as they've had uh, over the past several decades well, it, it, that's right. And, and, you know, we've had a couple members of our team here in D.C. that deployed uh, to, to serve as poll watchers in different parts of the country. And, you know, it's interesting to hear some of their stories coming back out of, from the field. You know, you, you send all these ballots out into the, into the mailboxes of voters around the country in some states, whether they asked for them or not. Um, and, and what you get back is not necessarily uniform following of the rules of how to fill the ballots out either. Uh, you know, you hear all these stories about weird marks off to the side, missing the box completely, circling the box, um, you know, trying to derive in vote, voter intent in, in some of those. Whether they're intending to vote for the Republican or the Democrat is, is often a lot of the battle as well. You know, when you're running them through machines, you just kind of get the result. And if it's not contested, um, there's, there's an implied number of sort of miscounts that always happen in those processes, right? But if you have a 55 to 45 election result, everybody kind of shrugs and says, well, there's probably some error on both sides, but it is what it is. When you start getting down to hand counting all these ballots, you, you get into this new layer of analyzing voter intent on a lot of those ballots. You can't assume everybody, you know, fully filled out the square like maybe you did or I did when we went to the polls. Um, and, and that is a lot of the reason this takes as long as it does. You really start to get down into the weeds on everybody's art projects that they sent back to these, uh, to these uh, various states. Looking at the probability of, of the votes at this point uh, with President-elect Joe Biden, uh, as is right now, I mean, we could see a, a, a shift um, I, I don't think that will happen, but it is possible. We could see a totally different shift uh, in, in the coming weeks. But in the case that Joe Biden be does become uh, president sworn in in uh, 2021, uh, folks across the countryside are very concerned. But also with that concern comes your role and your team's role out in Washington, D.C., uh, being a voice for the members of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association on these issues. Whether it's waters of the U.S., President Trump repealed and replaced that rule. Will, uh, uh, will a President Biden uh, repeal and replace 
President Trump's repeal and replacement rule, the Green New Deal, um, meat consumption, dietary guidelines, uh, USDA uh, secretary picks uh, on the horizon, um, and even the lame duck session of Congress. There's so much that is going on in producers' minds right now. Um, but but let's maybe talk about uh, 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 one of the big conversations in this election was the concern of the Green New Deal going uh, to different alternative power sources, declining meat consumption. And not all of that was on uh, Joe Biden's uh, talking points, more like his running mate, uh, the presumptive uh, vice president-elect Kamala Harris. Um, what, what are the chances that a Green New Deal would be pushed through by the Biden administration. So I'm going to put on my, uh, you know, my American history and policy nerd hat for a minute here, Lane. What we're going to see over the next couple of years really is the beauty of the American system. It, it's the beauty of the way the framers uh, of the Constitution set this system up. The gridlock that comes in this kind of environment isn't, uh, and I'm, this isn't my quote, I heard this earlier this week, and it's really true, the gridlock that we can expect in this kind of environment isn't uh, a symptom of a problem. It's a feature of the system. It, it, the, this system is designed so that when you have a change in, in leadership, uh, no one can just run the table. And we've seen this time and time again um, over the last decade or, or two as new administrations have swept into power. I believe this would be the first one in, in, in several decades that's not coming into a new administration uh, with, with uh, full control of Congress as well. You know, typically we see these wave elections and we've kind of gotten used to that, but coming in without a mandate. And I think that's a fairly that's a fairly consistent statement that, um, you know, a lot of people are making at this point is the one thing that is clear is, you know, nobody got a mandate here. Um, and, and, and so everyone is going to be compelled at the federal level to really find compromise and find common ground. You know, I, I think that we're seeing already in the last couple of days uh, quite a bit of infighting in the Democratic Party over this result. You know, a lot of those moderate Democrats that, that won their seats in 2018 uh, in Trump districts around the country, and we've talked a lot about them over the last couple of years, um, some of them lost their seats. That's why we're seeing probably a net 10 seat pickup for Republicans in the House of Representatives. Um, others that barely held on to their seats have been very vocal in the last week about the fact that the Democratic Party cannot keep putting them in this situation of defending policies that are horribly unpopular in rural America and horribly unpopular, quite frankly, in most of suburban America. You know, so when we start talking again about the Green New Deal, when we start talking about um, any of these climate policies that don't, don't take into account the really good work that we as cattle producers or others are already doing, um, you're going to find, I think, uh, a tough hill to climb, even in the Democratic Party, uh, to move some of these things forward over the next couple of years. I just don't think there's a runway to do it. We're going to talk about it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, everything will be on the table. You will hear every goofy idea uh, you can possibly imagine suggested um, in, in the next couple of years. But what we have to keep remembering is, you know, the path to actually moving any of those things forward is far more difficult. Um, as, as to the rulemakings and the, the progress that we've seen made over the last four years, in the Trump administration, and you referenced a few of them, the Navigable Waters Protection Rule uh, that, that replaced WOTUS, or the, the dramatic changes that were made to the Endangered Species Act, or to NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, uh, the Gray Wolf delisting and full 48-state delisting that we just saw a, a few weeks back 
Um, all of those things um, we are, as NCBA, uh, defending in federal court right now alongside the Trump administration. Um, we, we intervene in those cases um, so that cattle producers have a seat at the table as they work their way through the federal court system. And we do that for a very important reason. Uh, if there is a change in administration, you know, like we're seeing now, that new administration could likely stop defending the rulemakings of the previous administration in court. We saw that at the beginning of the Trump administration, um, where the Trump administration stopped defending rules that the Obama administration had promulgated, and we'll likely see it again this time. But by intervening in those cases, we can continue defending those rules even if the administration stops. So their only choice at that point would be to go back into a new rulemaking process. Um, that is not the same as an executive order. That takes time. That takes consultation with the American people through notice and comment. Um, there's an entire federal process uh, that has to occur that we've all been dealing with for the last four years on rulemakings to the Trump administration. None of this is designed to move quickly. Uh, that's why it's taken us a full four years to get the work done that we have in the, in the, in the current administration. So, you know, I, I know that there are a lot of producers around the country that are watching the news that are hearing this and they're fearing the worst from this administration. And, and, you know, I think the important thing to keep in mind and certainly what we'll be focused on here in Washington is separating, you know, the noise that's out there from, from the real movement on these issues. We have a really good story to tell and we have a lot to offer if this new administration is willing to listen and, and, and keep an open mind to just what good work our producers are doing around the country. And I think they will. Uh, I think the, the way the votes have, have come down in this election, I don't think they have much of a choice. So we're anxious to have that conversation. You know, we, we have an office here in D.C. that is set up uh, uh, and, and that does a really good job of building relationships on both sides of the aisle. Uh, you know, I say this a lot, but at the end of the day, we're in the friend-making business back here. Um, we're in the business of, of, of making friends and educating them about the good work the cattle industry does and how we produce the best beef in the world uh, using the least resources in the world. So we're going to keep making that argument. We're going to keep educating. And, and I think given the playing field that we have uh, before us now, we have a good opportunity to stay on offense and continue to log some wins. So a, a big part of that uh, when it comes to agriculture and understanding uh, agriculture's needs, their their role, understanding the role that livestock production plays uh, in environmental stewardship is really going to be championed by whoever um, the former vice president, now president-elect Biden, picks to be his secretary of agriculture. And uh, we, we are seeing a lot of names pop up. And not surprising, uh, Colin Peterson, who was just defeated, longtime uh, Ag Committee uh, uh, member. He's been the, the chair of the Ag Committee for, for several sessions now as well. Uh, Minnesota Democrat that was soundly defeated. And also uh, former U.S. Senator Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, who was actually on the short list for President Trump's Secretary of Agriculture pick. She was a, a moderate Democrat from the state of North Dakota. Um, and there's also some names uh, floating out there as well, uh, uh, Senate uh, uh, members and uh, House members. But how important is it going to be um, that uh, the the USDA pick understand production agriculture, and especially uh, issues that impact producers uh, of all agriculture uh, backgrounds, but also that can make it through the U.S. Senate if, in fact, it is controlled by Republicans? Oh, it's it's critically important. I mean, I, I can't, you can't say it enough, right? I mean, you have to have a leader of USDA that understands what farmers and ranchers need to be successful, 
right? And, and, and you have to have somebody that's able to cut through the rhetoric from some of these outside groups that, that want to undermine uh, production agriculture um, in, in order to really make sure we're, we're crafting policy that makes sense so that we can keep those grocery store shelves full. Um, you know, one thing that you always see um, in, in uh, agriculture policy, especially in, in, in democratic circles, is that push-pull between the, the agriculture side of agriculture and, and that, uh, you know, that nutrition side and, uh, you know, the, the public, uh, public support program side. And we see that play out during farm bills quite often, right? It's kind of the balance that's been achieved over the years um, between, you know, uh, uh, suburban and urban audiences and rural audiences that gets a farm bill across the finish line. Um, as you get food stamp programs and, and WIC programs and things like that, and you get agriculture policy as well. And everybody gets something out of that process. And, and, you know, you will see, I think, more discussion of that in a Democratic administration, and that is a box that they'll be looking to check as they move through that process. I, I still believe we're, we're a little early. This is Washington's favorite parlor game is, is, you know, naming potential nominees for those spots the week after a presidential election. Um, I think we're still a week or two out from seeing the clear front runners really uh, emerge in those races. Uh, um, you know, it's important to talk through some of those options like – Chairman Peterson and Heidi Heitkamp and others, I think all of them would be, uh, would be choices that, that understand this playing field and that we would be able to work with really effectively. But, uh, you know, you're going to have a lot of, uh, a lot of sort of uh, uh, that process playing out over the next couple of weeks, not just there, but EPA, Interior, uh, Department of Transportation, uh, Treasury, you know, you name it. Um, and the president-elect is going to have to do a lot of work to figure out how to placate his own radical base um, in, in that process. And I'm not, I'm not being flippant when I say that. Um, you know, that far left wing, that kind of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wing of the party um, is fighting their own battle right now. Um, you know, and, and uh, the, the, the Vice President Biden, uh, as he comes into this role, is going to have to figure out how to placate that without putting his own party in jeopardy of, of uh, uh, losing more ground in the 2018, or excuse me, 2022 uh, midterm election cycle. So, you know, it, it, there, there's going to be a lot of uh, there's going to be a lot of behind the scenes negotiating that's going to have to occur. Um, I, you know, I wish I could say that it's always going to be as easy as just picking the person that, that that that's the best fit and knows the most about agriculture for that job. But unfortunately, politics always finds a way into that process. So, you know, our job here is going to be to uh, try to inform and and try to speak. Uh, honestly, to those different choices and, and uh, you know, advise to whatever extent uh, folks will listen to that advice about what the cattle industry would like to see out of that leadership in order to make sure that we can continue uh, providing food to American people. Now, of course, Interior, uh, they had the Bureau of Land Management uh, that impacts so many uh, Western ranchers in terms of public lands leases and holding up the integrity of the Taylor Grazing Act. Uh, who are you hearing yep. names for Interior Secretary at this point? I know it's early on, but uh, how it's really going to be a regrouping effort depending on who is chosen and uh, the efforts on the NCBA federal lands aspect of it to make sure that uh, ranchers' voices are not uh, 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 you know, buried in terms of other land use groups as well. So interior, you know, and natural resources in general is a very different conversation than agriculture. Agriculture, 
I, I thankfully in this country tends to still be relatively bipartisan. Uh, the same cannot be said for the Department of Interior and natural resource issues. And you, you know, uh, as well as a lot of listeners do, that that's the, that's the area uh, of, of, of agriculture that I come out of. Um, and, you know, we certainly in the resource world uh, tend to start with fighting rather than compromising. Um, you know, I, I would expect that um, as uh, this new administration is looking through possible choices uh, to, to fill that important spot as Secretary of Interior, uh, they're going to need to look at, at some of those things. Um, you know, I, I, we've heard names in the past that I imagine will come bubbling back to the surface. Um, you know, I, I, there are going to be some um, former Senate candidates that I would imagine are going to be looking for jobs now in this administration. Um, you know, I, 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 Governor Bullock uh, from Montana uh, is, is somebody that I would imagine um, would, be, would be considered on a list like that. Um, there, are, there are others as well that will kind of fit that same profile. You know, uh, if, if a president-elect Biden is looking to uh, heal, as, as he has said in his public statements, uh, the interior front is going to be a really important area for him to demonstrate that. So looking for a, uh, a choice that is not so far into the, uh, you know, to the environmental movement that they're, that they're unwilling to, to acknowledge the critical role of active management of our resources in the West. Um, or the, the critical need to uphold multiple use as a concept on those landscapes. That's going to be really, really important uh, to, to thread that needle. Um, you know, I, 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 I always fear that when we come into a Democratic administration, um, even a moderate one, you know, you, you have sort of a default mindset that, that any management is bad amongst some segments of that community. And when you have to fill 4,000 uh, political appointments at the federal level, and that is the number, um, you know, it's going to be hard to find 4,000, uh, uh, you know, loyal Democrats to fill those spots that all believe that, uh, you know, that ranchers have uh, a critical role to play in managing, you know, 600 million acres of, of pasture and grazing land in this country and about 250 million acres of the federal estate. Um, that's going to be a real challenge and a real hill for us to climb um, we were able to build relationships on some issues in the Obama administration, others, uh, national monument designations being a, a, an obvious one, um, BLM planning 2.0 being another one. Uh, we, we were not as successful. So uh, that's going to be one we're going to have to reapproach. The Public Lands Council, I know, is already having those conversations. Uh, Caitlin Glover and her team are hard at work um, on, on those issues, and obviously NCBA will play our role as well um, for our producers around the West. But, you know, that, that's going to be that's going to be a tougher uh, uh, conversation, I, I'm afraid, than than the agriculture space will be. It always is. And there's no reason to think this one will be any different. I wish I had a better answer, Lane. Um, but I, I unfortunately, I think I, I, I just I, I, I've been through too many battles on that front to think that that's going to be an easy path in, in any Democratic administration. Uh, trade was one of the top priorities of the Trump administration. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of trade successes uh, under President Trump's uh, trade deals. Yes, uh, uh, rural America was hurt by retaliatory tariffs. But uh, you look at the exports to China this year alone, $17 billion. That's a new record. It's not going to meet the phase one $36 billion goal that was set out in the phase one trade deal that was announced uh, early here in 2021. 
Um, and now this morning I'm reading reports from the South China Morning Post that China is going to, and this isn't coming as a surprise, China wants to renegotiate uh, the trade deal with the United States to make it more favorable to them is pretty much what the what the article uh, discusses. On the trade front, what is, is a Biden administration, how is that going to change and what role will NCBA play to make sure that livestock producers' voices are heard and good trade deals are, are, are uh, created? Well, look, NCBA, first and foremost, is going to continue to advocate for the reduction of those non-science-based trade barriers that have been uh, such a central focus of, of trade negotiations over the past couple of years. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm uh, going to continue to bang the drum uh, as loud as I can, and I can tell you that our team will as well uh, on, on the idea that, you know, our second most important export uh, behind the best beef in the world from the U.S. is the method with which we produce it. Uh, you know, the reason we have the lowest greenhouse gas emissions footprint uh, for livestock production anywhere on Earth is because we have such a highly evolved, efficient system uh, for producing uh, the best-tasting beef in the world. And we're going to have to continue educating. We're going to have to continue advocating for that uh, in this new administration. You know, obviously, they will bring uh, a fresh set of eyes and some different perspectives to some of those things. Uh, I would imagine that their perspective on climate in some of these in some of these negotiations uh, will change from from the Trump administration. You know, we're we're obviously uh, in the middle of talks with the UK right now uh, on on a potential uh, bilateral trade deal following Brexit. Um, you know, the UK consumers are are heavily focused and they're being heavily messaged, quite frankly, by the press in the UK on the need to maintain UK's food safety standards and their production standards. Well, we've made the argument and will continue to that our standards are every bit as high as theirs. Um, you know, they have the Red Tractor program over there. We have BQA here in the United States. Those are equivalent programs uh, that ensure that high-quality product. Um, you know, we're going to have to continue educating, and we're going to have to make sure that the new uh, trade regime that comes in under uh, a, a Biden administration understands uh, the important tools they have in the toolbox to advocate um, for reduced non-tariff barriers uh, and, and reduced tariffs into those countries for U.S. beef. And, and we're prepared to do that. Uh, you know, we had good relationships on trade with the Obama administration. Um, that was a bright spot in that administration. So there's no reason to think we'll have a huge departure from that here, although it will most likely look very different than the approach uh, President Trump has taken over the last four years. And uh, currently, the lame duck session of Congress is underway. The Senate is back in D.C. here this week. The House will resume uh, next week. Uh, a lot of uh, questions are, are we going to see a funding bill? Uh, that runs out on December 11th to keep the U.S. Uh, government uh, funded. And also, will we see another uh, COVID Relief Act, and will there be agriculture relief included? That Those are two big what-ifs, because funding bills are never easy, uh, it, it seems nowadays, uh, when it comes to negotiations. But uh, on those two topics, what is the mood and climate out, out in D.C. when it comes to an ag relief, part of a, a CARES Act II, or, or, or a funding bill? Well, it, you know, I, um, having done this a few times, there's one thing you can always bank on when a new Democratic administration comes in, and that is uh, fiscal hawks will come out on Capitol Hill and the Republican Party. Um, that is just something we, we know is, is always going to be the case. Um, given the amount of money that's been spent on COVID relief over the last year, uh, you know, several trillion dollars, um, that discussion is going to be, um, I think, probably top of mind over the next few weeks. 
we're hearing several different versions of that. You know, obviously, the, like you said, the government needs to be funded by December 11th. Um, there are some important reauthorizations that need to occur uh, by then as well. Um, you know, we're hearing that there are some negotiations happening on potential COVID relief uh, now between the two chambers on Capitol Hill. Uh, that could take the form of some kind of a grand deal uh, for funding and COVID relief. Uh, you know, given the way this election has shaken out, given the fact that we're kind of at a, a stalemate as far as uh, you know, control or momentum from one party or another in Washington. Um, you know, that does that does raise the stakes for some some compromise. Um, so we'll we'll get kind of a preview of how these uh, how these various camps are, are going to work together over the next couple of years here in the lame duck because the pressure is on for them to get something done in the next 30 days, um, and and uh, we'll we'll see how effective they can be in doing that. And we'll also you know obviously have to see uh, where President Trump's head is. Uh, as far as his engagement with that process, um, obviously, you know, he is focused on on those reelection uh, issues at the moment. Um, you know, it, it's going to be kind of an interesting situation. Uh, he's uh, I, I don't think anybody listening to this podcast would disagree that he has uh, he has been a non-traditional leader. Uh, and, and this will most likely be a non-traditional transition uh, to go to go right along with that, if that, in fact, is, is, is where this ends up. Um, and, and so that's all going to play into that. And remember, you know, we have some changed circumstances during the lame duck as well. Martha McSally losing her seat in Arizona means that because that was a, a special uh, election seat, Mark Kelly will, will take office in November. Um, so you will have a one seat swing in, uh, in the U.S. Senate during the middle of this lame duck process. That will happen before uh, they potentially take a, uh, a funding vote. Uh, in the U.S. Senate, so um, you know, no shortage of no shortage of, of uh, twists and turns uh, during this lame duck session. But uh, those conversations are happening. Uh, we are hearing that they're they're making some progress. And remember, you know, they've they've had the makings of these deals uh, on paper for months now. They they don't have to reinvent the wheel over the next few weeks. They just need to kind of tighten up some bolts and see if there's something they can all agree on uh, to to get done here. Um, you know, there's also going to be, uh, I think, some on the Democratic side that don't want to do too much now so that uh, a president-elect Biden can take more credit for it after he takes office. Um, there, there's always some politics at play there as well. Obviously, uh, for agricultural producers, we can't wait on, on some of that, that assistance. So uh, we prefer if they're going to do something, they do it sooner rather than later. Um, but, you know, that's all going to factor into the, the politics of, of this over the next couple of weeks, as is Pfizer's announcement that they potentially have uh, have have hit upon a, a coronavirus vaccine that could be available sooner rather than later. You know, that that may change some people's math on the Hill as well. Yeah, Speaking uh, of covid, it, it did impact uh, so many agriculture meetings. Uh, the 2021 Cattle Industry Convention was moved from February to uh, this uh, this coming August. Uh, how was that? How does that impact grassroots policy, Ethan? Uh, um, my wife and I were discussing how exactly how, how is the leadership of NCBA, the the officer team, how, how is that going to look, and how how is the policy going to be passed or, or held on to? Just with that reformatted uh, convention being held a few months later in 2021, uh, helping set that policy policy that you will follow you and your team out in Washington, D.C.? Look, first and foremost, I mean, from the policy perspective, uh, we, we, we will still do our policy business uh, as we always do. I mean, the grassroots policy process uh, that informs how my team 
operates here in Washington is is the most important thing we do around here. Um, so you know, moving the convention to to August, I think is 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 a a real win, uh, given that most most groups are having to cancel their conventions outright this year. Uh, the idea of being able to move that to later in the year so that we can still have that important face-to-face meeting is something that I think is giving us all uh, some some relief because you know the cattle industry uh, uh, is is used to face-to-face meetings. We do better when we meet in person, when we can have that hallway conversation, when we can uh, touch base with producers from other parts of the country. Uh, we were able to do that this summer at our summer business meeting, um, and and uh, you know the, the fact that we're still going to be able to do that in August is a is a real win. Uh, we're working now on on putting the pieces together for. Uh, that, that winter meeting and and how we ensure that that policy process continues, uh, uh, you know, in in uh, in place of what what would have been our convention in Nashville. Um, we we will be able to pull that off without a problem. We did a virtual hybrid policy meeting during our summer business meeting where we had uh, uh, states from all across the country that couldn't travel to Denver that were able to participate in those meetings fully and vote and have their opinion heard and offer amendments and debate. And that worked really well. So we have a process in place that we know we can rely on to make sure we get that policy work done. Um, and I have every confidence we'll be able to do that again uh, here in February um, so, that, so that we make sure that those voices from around the country are, are truly driving our work here in Washington. So what are the top priorities uh, currently for your team as we look to 2021 with a, a new administration, uh, as it looks like it will be? Um, what are those top priorities that were set forward by NCBA members through their grassroots policy? Uh, could you share just a few of those uh, issues you'll be working to address? Well, you know, obviously we set our new policy priorities based on membership's input at our convention. We will do that again this year uh, leading into this new Congress. This has been an odd year because we set out our policy priorities not knowing that COVID-19 was going to hijack, right, the entire, the entire year. But, but nevertheless, um, we have still focused on those, on those policy priorities. And, and the, the things that are top of mind for our producers around the country aren't going away just because a new administration is in place. You know, we are still going to have to pay a lot of attention to cattle markets. Obviously, we have spent a lot of this year talking about that. We will still spend a lot of next year talking about cattle markets talking about price discovery. Um, obviously, we've, we've had a working group that's been hard at work on that topic throughout the year. Um, we're in the process now of, of, of implementing that triggers report and the framework that analyzes negotiated trade at those regional levels to ensure that we have sufficient uh, negotiated trade to, 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 to have price discovery uh, for our markets around the country. Uh, we're going to continue working on those issues like hook space, like processing capacity that were so impactful during COVID-19. Uh, COVID-19 isn't going away anytime soon, so we're going to need to continue to stay vigilant with this new administration to ensure that the supply chain has the tools that it needs to continue moving product through the pipeline. We cannot afford to have another breakdown like we had in April and May um, in, in, uh, in processing capacity uh, that led to that big backlog, to le- that led to that giant spike in box beef prices and that huge drop uh, in in prices for our producers around the country, we can't we can't have that happen again. So we're going to continue to focus on those issues. Those were in our policy priorities before COVID hit. Um, I, I have no doubt they will most likely remain in our policy priorities moving forward. We're going to continue to work on topics like fake meat. Uh, you know, obviously um, that's not going away anytime soon. We're, we're we're hearing more and more on that topic, ensuring that that's a level playing field 
and that those uh, those fake meat products, whether they be cell-based or plant-based, um, aren't allowed to leverage beef's good name to market their products to consumers around the country is going to continue to be a big issue for, for us here at NCBA. Uh, the regulatory front is, is going to continue to be a, a huge topic for us. Obviously, all of the rulemakings that have been, that have been done over the, net, the last four years um, are going to now be the subject of ongoing litigation and potential engagement from uh, a new Biden administration. That is going to be an issue we're going to need to spend a lot of time on, defending the progress that's been made um, and negotiating with this administration over whatever uh, mark they're going to want to leave on those processes. Um, you know, sustainability and climate is another topic that uh, is obviously going to bubble back to the surface as a really hot topic um, moving into this new administration. And, you know, that's one where we have a really good story to tell uh, in the cattle industry. You, you put 20 or 30 commodity groups uh, around a table here in Washington, D.C., and, and I, I mean, I can tell you that the cattle industry has about the best story to tell of any of them about our, our, our environmental footprint and the ecosystem service benefits that we provide. Um, you know, so so telling that story, advocating for the good work we're already doing as an industry across the board, whether it be for for wildlife or, or, or habitat conservation or reducing fuel loads uh, for those devastating wildfires we've seen around the country or carbon sequestration benefit. Um, we, we have a real good story to tell, and we're going to need to tell it really loudly heading into this administration. So, you know, those are a few of the things I think you're going to see us really focus on uh, moving into this new administration. But obviously, uh, our, our policy priorities will be set by our membership like they always are uh, moving into uh, convention season. Uh, so we look forward to getting that input from our members and, and getting our marching orders for the year. Well, a lot of work ahead of you and your team and all the leadership at NCBA. Ethan, I know uh, it's a, a busy day out there for you. Uh, any last comments uh, before uh, I let you return to your work day and, and we let our listeners uh, uh, tune into another uh, Cattleman's Call podcast after this one wraps up? <laughs> you know, I, I, I know there are a lot of producers around the country that are watching these election results and, and, and fearing the worst from this process. And I get that. Um, and, and, you know, by and large, to some extent, uh, part of what cattle producers and NCBA members pay me and my team to do here in Washington is to look out for boogeymen and, 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 and fear the worst. But we have a lot to celebrate in this election cycle. We've made a lot of progress on Capitol Hill. We have a lot of new members coming to Congress from districts around the country, uh, some of whom are cattle producers, a lot of new members that are, that are from cattle producing backgrounds uh, that, are, that are excited to come to Washington and advocate for this industry and work for producers around the country. Uh, the NCBA PAC engaged heavily in this cycle, and, and we have a lot of members coming back, both Republicans and Democrats, who, who look at NCBA as allies and partners in this process. Um, you know, that's why we do the work we do here in Washington, so that we have a landscape where we can operate and continue to get wins for producers and protect them from bad federal policy. And we're going to continue to do that. And, and, and we're, we're optimistic about the landscape we have to operate in over the next couple of years. And, and, you know, what we need from producers around the country is to keep making their voices heard keep talking to their members of Congress, keep advocating for their businesses around the country, and keep telling us as an association what they need from us uh, to prosper. And, and as long as we keep doing that, we're going to keep making progress moving forward, and, 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 and I'm excited for what lays ahead. Uh, and I just can't tell you how much we appreciate all of the producers around the country that, that, that keep us uh, in the loop on their businesses throughout the year. 
Well, Ethan, thank you so much for joining us and uh, continuing to uh, talk about and uh, advocate on behalf of NCBA members in the U.S. livestock industry in Washington, D.C. Ethan Lane, Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association in Washington, D.C. Ethan, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Lane. All right, friends, that will do it for this edition of the Cattlemen's Call podcast. I'm Lane Northline. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.